Well, I wish everyone a good evening. Glad that you're here. Those of you that are joining us online, we're thankful for you. And for those in the parking lot, probably keeping your cars on tonight, keep the heater going, keeping it warm in here as well for those of you who are inside the auditorium. So we're glad everyone is here. If you want to open to chapter 23 of Genesis, our objective tonight is 23 through 26. So we're doing about four chapters each week. And one of our chapters is quite lengthy. If you've read ahead, you say, well, I feel like I've been in chapter 24 for a long time, because it is a long chapter. Uh, we'll do our best to kind of hit the highlights, as we always do, and then we'll uh, conclude with some applications. If you have comments throughout the evening, if they're short, just shout them out. I'll repeat them. Uh, if they're longer, then David will come and get your microphone and you can share those comments as well. Let's go ahead and take a moment and uh, pray together. Our Father in God, thank you for your rich blessings, for the kindness that you show to us as your people, and for the kindness and providence that you show to the people of old that we read about in Genesis. We pray your blessings on our study tonight that we will learn things that will not just help us to know more about your word, but help us to then apply it in the way that we teach others and in the way that we live our lives in accordance with your will. We pray, Father, for the children's classes, for the young people who are learning tonight, for those that are teaching them. We're thankful for their parents, for the work that they do on a routine basis. And we're thankful, Father, for all those who are either watching this or will watch this over the course of the coming days. We pray your blessings on us as we try to do what is right, that you'll forgive us when we do wrong. We thank you for Christ Jesus. In him we pray. Amen. All right. Again, glad you're here. Chapter 23 is where we're going to start uh, this evening. Uh, and we're starting with a focus on a woman. And as Bible students, you know that sometimes the focus gets put on men more than it does on women. However, in chapter 23, and again, when Moses, the likely author of Genesis, when he wrote Genesis, when he wrote it out, he didn't write it out in chapter and verse form. We understand that. But it is interesting that as he shifts to the next paragraph or the next page or however you want to look at this, that it starts with Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Interesting uh, little note, there's a lot of things, a lot of firsts in Genesis and a lot of kind of interesting facts about Genesis. But she, Sarah, at the age of 127 at her death is the only female in Genesis. And I believe, I didn't go through Genesis through Malachi, but I believe she's the only female whose age in the Old Testament is recorded. In the book of Genesis, for sure, if I, if I remember correctly, based on what I was reading. But, I, but it's rare that a female gets recorded. But after all, she is the mother of, she's the wife of the father of many nations. And so she plays this relatively, not relatively, this very important role. Um, at this point, then, Isaac is approximately how many years old? And we don't know for absolutely sure. We probably know within a year or two. How old is Isaac, give or take? 
Someone said 37. That's based on my calculations and based on footnotes and study Bibles that we read. Um, that seems to be the case as well. And that would put Abraham at about how old? 137, right? So just remember the seven. So you have Sarah dying at age 127. Her husband was a, was a decade older, and Sarah was roughly 90 when she had uh, Isaac, and Abraham was roughly 100. Well, not roughly. He was 100 when he had, when they gave birth to, to Isaac. Uh, we'll get a little ahead of ourselves, but bonus points. How old was Abraham when he died? We'll get to that. So if you find it between now and then, just stand up and shout it. Don't do that. Okay. All right. Let's talk for a minute about Abraham's faith uh, as we transition in chapter 23 to uh, a focus on Abraham. Uh, Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth in verse 3. I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered, saying, Hear us, our Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place that you may bury your dead. So and then you drop down to verse uh, 9. They gave that they may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of the field. Let him give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among you. So the point that I put up here that I wanted us to consider for just a moment is this is uh, another exhibit or a picture of Abraham's faith in the future of his people in the choice of his burial location. What do I mean by that? I, I mean simply that where is Abraham at this point? Um, and a generic answer works, starting with the C. He's in Canaan, right? Generally speaking, uh, when we die, uh, we, not, not generally, but oftentimes we choose to be buried uh, where we've spent either the majority of our lives or sometimes we even go back to where we started our lives, right? So uh, if I kill over, um, I guess Wendy can choose what to do with me. Um, but I, she probably would put me back in Indiana, and that's probably what I would prefer just because I spent my first 28 years there. That's where my parents are. That's where most of my grandparents are. That's where their families. So it probably makes sense. They would probably bury me in Indiana. Now, that may change uh, through time, um, but Abraham says, don't bury me back in my homeland. Don't take me back to Indiana. Bury me in a strange land. What does that say about Abraham? Well, it says that he understands the promise made in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 that the land of Canaan, this foreign land, which was home to all of the ites, the people that were creating problems for uh, God's people going forward, that's where he will eventually uh, have his lineage and territory. That's where the sons of Jacob are going to dwell and while Abraham doesn't know the whole story, he has faith in that. So I thought that was kind of interesting to point out as well. Just a, a point or two about Machpelah, uh, or Machpelah, depending on how you pronounce it. Machpelah is, I think, the, probably the best way to pronounce it. 
It is the site of the burial of Sarah, and it is also where Abraham is going to be buried, and it's where Jacob is going to be buried. So this is going to be like the family tomb. This is going to be the place where they all go back, and we see a reference to that. I think all the way into chapter 40, 48 and 49, we see a reference to Machpelah as the cave. Um, let's go down to the end of chapter 24. I'm sorry, the end of chapter 23, uh, where it says in verse 19, After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth, as property for a burial place. So that's chapter 23, and that's all the time we're going to spend on that. Let's go ahead and move to chapter 24. We have two slides on chapter 24. We can have three easily because of the length of this chapter. Uh, my Bible has one subheading for chapter 24, and it's called Isaac's Wife, or the Bride of Isaac. And of course, that is Rebecca. Let's start in chapter 24. Uh, and verse 2, Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who is unidentified, some people think it could be Eleazar. I'll tell you this much, it either was Eleazar or it wasn't Eleazar. That's how smart I am. But it may be Eleazar. Um, to the oldest servant who ruled over his house, please put your hand under my thigh and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth that you will not take a wife from my son, Isaac, from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but you should go to my country, to my family and take a wife for my son, Isaac. And then the conversation continues for the next few verses and then Abraham stops talking. Incidentally, these are the last recorded words of Abraham. So Abraham is going to soon be exiting out of the picture, and the focus is going to be on Isaac. Although if you're thinking, wait a minute, the focus isn't on Isaac very much, that would be correct because we quickly then turn the page to Jacob. Isaac only gets about a chapter, chapter and a half as a real focus. We'll talk about him tonight. Uh, and what we do get a focus with Isaac is not very, um, well, it's not very glowing in terms of the way that he deals with Abimelech, but more on that in a few moments. So let's talk about Isaac's wife. Her name is Rebecca, and let's talk about Rebecca and Isaac. And so if I were going to outline this particular chapter, here are some of the highlights. Um, we already read in verses 3 and 4 that Abraham tells his servant, pick her from where, go get her from where? Family. From the family. Some, somebody that's related and somebody that perceivably knows our God, not a wife of the Canaanites. And we're good enough students of the Old Testament that we know, and we just talked about this four months ago in our study of Ezra and Nehemiah, that when there were intermarriages between God's people and the people of the world, that God got very upset about that kind of thing uh, because he, he predicted he knew that a choice to marry someone who was outside of the family, not just the physical family in this case, because they, these people are related, but also out of the spiritual family would be a detriment to their spiritual growth or their spiritual heritage. All right, so what was the test in a phrase or two that 
Abraham's and, and the servant come up with and that God orchestrates. There's a test that's going to happen in the next eight to ten verses. And it deals with what kind of animal? Camels, right? Watering of camels. Uh, let's go down to verse 6. Abraham said, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven who took me from my father's house from the land of the family and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, Tell to your descendants I give this land. He will send his angel before you. You shall take a wife of my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. A servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, swore to him concerning this matter. Then verse 10 and following. The servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, for all his master's goods were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And um, what ends up happening here is you have this test where the person who says, I will give you a drink, or in response to the request, give me a drink, I will also water your camels as well, that is going to be the sign. That's going to be the one. Um, and I think we're, we're probably relatively familiar with that. Most of our children could probably tell you that story because they've got good Bible class teachers and good parents who are working with them. But let's kind of break it down for a moment. Uh, one thing in a book of first. Um, I'm sure that there, well, I, I know, we know that there was interaction between Abraham and Jehovah. We know that there was communication between them in a very special way. But the first recorded actual, what we might call prayer, seems to transpire in 2412. So 24-12, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Just thought that was kind of interesting to point out as well. Drop down to verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, Abraham's brother, so there's the relationship there, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. And the young woman was very beautiful to behold, a virgin no man had known her, and she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. And the servant, um, I love verse 17, it says, the servant ran to meet her and said, please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So this servant, who is dutifully following all the commands of Abraham, is praying to God, is excited about God's plan coming to fruition, uh, is delighted to be doing the job that he's been given to do, and he's not even named, which tells me, and this is one of the applications I didn't include on our, on our final set of applications and observations, is that oftentimes the people who are doing God's will, names aren't known to others. In this congregation, there are people who are cooking and who are cleaning and who are driving people and who are writing cards and who are making phone calls and sending texts and doing all kinds of little things that we have no idea what's going on. And um, their names will not be known. And when they die, 
will miss them, but we will not have known all the good that they have done. But God knows. And it reminds me of Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus says, When you do your charitable deeds, do not do them before men. Do not sound the trumpet. And three different times in Matthew 6, Jesus says, Your Father will reward you openly. Um, and I think that's really powerful here. Here's this nameless man who is doing a lot of good in executing God's will because this is important to Abraham. And of course, now that we have the entirety of the Bible, the entirety of the Old Testament especially, this is important for us as well. So watering the camels would have been a very significant and big task. So in many ways, Rebecca is this Proverbs 31 character who was the industrious woman who was willing to work hard uh, and willing to sacrifice her time for others. Drop down to verse 22. So it was when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a golden nose ring weighing half a shekel, two bracelets for her wrist weighing 10 shekels of gold and said, whose daughter are you? Tell me, please, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? She says, I am the daughter of Bethuel, Milcah's son, whom she bore to, to Nahor. Moreover, she said to him, we have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge. Remember, hospitality is huge in ancient cultures. And in the book of Genesis, we see hospitality being played as an important role. Uh, we'll get into that in verse 32 in just a minute. But then in verse 26, the man bowed down his head and worshiped God. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of my master, Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. As for me... Being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So what does he do? Again, this nameless character worships God, thanks God, prays to God, uh, and does all the kinds of things that we know we are to do in the way that God blesses us. We are to thank him, bless him, praise him in a similar kind of fashion. Uh, anything else on the marriage between Rebecca and Isaac? Although we got some more to talk about here, um, but before we move on to Paul's to talk about Laban for a second, anything we haven't touched on yet? You want to make sure we get touched on. All right, let's go ahead then and uh, drop down to verse twenty-nine, and uh, it says. Well, verse 28, the young woman, Rebecca, ran and told her mother's household these things. Now, Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out to the man by the well. When it says he ran out, uh, he's excited as well. But why is he excited? The Bible gives us maybe a glimpse into Laban's character. And I just put up on, on this particular slide uh, the introduction to Laban. Is this a glimpse of his character? Came to pass when he saw the nose ring, saw the bracelets, and when he heard the words of his sister Rebekah, saying, Thus the man spoke to me, that he went to the man, and there he stood by the camels at the well. And he says, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared this house and a place for the camels. Um, some suggest that this is now the pulling back of the curtain as to the character of Laban as being a man associated with greed, 
with a focus on wealth, uh, whether that be the case or not, Laban has some issues that he's, they're going to have to be worked out in the story. Laban is a brother to Rebekah, and I'm told and have read that, again, in ancient cultures, where you have a brother of a single sister, that he plays almost as important a role in giving the family a blessing as does the father. And in some ways, there's still something to be said for that in our modern culture. If, you, and if you're an older brother and you've got a younger sister and some guy wants to marry your sister, you may be like, well, who are you to marry my sister? She's too good for you. Uh, you must get my approval first kind of thing, that kind of macho sense of things. Maybe that's what's going on here. But either way, Laban plays a very important role, so much so that um, years ago, before I really sat down and studied this, if someone would have asked me who was Laban, I would have probably incorrectly said it was the father of Rebekah without reading the text. But, of course, that's not the case at all. Um, okay. Again, we see where hospitality plays this important role, 32 through about uh, 34 here in the text. Uh, and then uh, we're going to skip down to about verse 50. And I know we're skipping a lot of text here. Some of this is repetitive. The promise regarding the camel situation, the fulfillment regarding the camel situation, uh, and now we see things coming to fruition. Verse 50, Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you either bad or good. That's an interesting way of putting it. And there's a couple different ways of reading that. Um, reading the Bible in Genesis sometimes is like reading a text message in that you don't see the facial expressions. Or it's like 2020 and trying to have facial expressions with a mask on, Right? Uh, so like right now, I don't know if you're frowning at me. I mean, you could be scowling at me. And I, I'm thinking you guys are loving this. <laughs> but um, I, I can see some smiles, so that's good. Um, but verse 51 goes on to say, Here is Rebecca before you. Take her and go. Let her be your master's son wife, as the Lord has spoken. If nothing else, what verse 50 seems to suggest is there may be some ambiguity as to the nature of, of the, the tone of the statement. But they are, in essence, confessing, we cannot thwart God's plan. God's plans are going to happen whether we get involved or not. And that's often the case throughout the Old Testament, is God is going to make sure that his plan is done and is executed, regardless of whoever comes and tries to, to mess it up or whatever. Uh, remember that um, Pharaoh was going to destroy all of them in the book of Exodus, and of course God says, no, I'm not going to let that happen. We talked about the flood. God says, I'm not going to let it happen where all the people die. At least one righteous person is going to live. Um, again in verse 52, it came to pass when Abraham's servant heard their words that he worshipped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. Uh, one of the things that you get trapped in is and I, I've mentioned this before, is when you teach a Bible class um, and you're also responsible for writing sermons, is you kind of get tunnel vision with, oh, that'd make a good sermon, uh, or that's a sermon there. Uh, I'm thinking of a sermon. Maybe you could preach this. You do a better job than what I do. Um, and the unknown servant, 
and talk about all the different qualifications of this guy that is nameless because here he is worshiping again and rendering to God the kind of uh, worship he deserves. Um, the mother-in-law of Rebecca has kind of a, a mixed review. Now, she's recorded in Hebrews chapter 11 as a great heroine of faith. And one of the points that we made, I think, two weeks ago, maybe it's three weeks ago now, is that even great men and women of faith have their histories, have their backgrounds, and they have their sins, and they have their mistakes. Rebecca, it seems to me, at least just my assessment of her, is one where um, there's not a lot said about Rebecca, at least early on. When we get to her having children, much is said about her. Then we can, we can cast some judgment on her if we want to at that point. But Rebecca seems to be a decent character based on what we're reading in these verses. Um, look at verse 56. He said to them, Do not hinder me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away so that I may go to my master. So they said, We will call the young woman and ask her personally. And they called Rebecca and said, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So this seems to show at least some amount of faith in Rebecca. I think it's interesting that in a world of arranged marriages and where women don't have a lot of rights, they actually give her the option and they say, would you like to go? And she says, I'll go. Um, remember, she has not seen her fiance, right? So um, think about that, um, marrying someone without seeing them. Uh, you, could get, uh, you could be very fortunate or you could, <laughs> you could not be so fortunate, right? Uh, these days we get to see who we're going to marry before. I remember when I was very young, probably about eight years old, I told my parents that I was glad that I was born. They said, why? They said, because I'm the one that asked the girl um, who gets, you know, will you marry me? You know, typically it's the man that asks the woman, not that it's, you know, these, these days you, it can be the other way around sometimes, and that's neither here nor there. Um, but I was under the impression as an eight-year-old boy that if you are a woman and the guy asks you to marry you, you're required to say yes. And they're like, well, Leland, you don't have to, she doesn't have to say yes. And I thought, well, that makes my job a whole lot more challenging in the next 20 years. Um, but... I digress. Okay. Um, and then the last thing here is let's talk about Isaac's character, verse 61 through 63. Rebecca and her maids arose. They rode on the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebecca and departed. Now Isaac came from the way of Beer Lahai Roy, for he dwelt in the south. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening, and he lifted his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. Seemingly, what was he meditating about? about the same kinds of things that were going on in a distance. Um, it seems that Isaac was a faithful character as well. And again, we don't get a lot of focus on Isaac, uh, at least at this point. We, when we think about Isaac, we almost always think about Jacob and Esau. We almost always think about it through the lens of his sons. But Isaac here is introduced as a relatively decent character, and the same is true with Rebecca. Uh, anything else on chapter 24, either brief or in length, that you wanted to share? Before we move on to 25, we've got 16 minutes left, so I think we'll be okay on time. 
All right, let's go ahead to chapter 25. Uh, chapter 25, generally speaking, we look at the last eight verses or so, and we kind of skip the first section. Uh, I think in part because we're not as familiar with that. Two, it's uh, potentially a little bit complicated. I don't have all the answers to chapter 25, but let's talk about Abraham and Keturah for uh, just a moment or two. Um, in verse 1, what is Keturah called? She's called the blank of Abraham. Wife, yeah, not, not a trick question. She's called the wife of Abraham. But if you drop down to verse 6, the word that is used is concubines. If you look at 1 Chronicles 1, I want to say 26 or 28, you may have a... It's somewhere in the first chapter of First Chronicles where it goes back to the history of the people. It'll make reference to Keturah as a concubine. Um, it is possible, uh, and I should have put a question mark next to possible because I don't know. It is possible that chapters 25, that chapter 25 events are not sequentially arranged. There are, there seems to be some evidence that there are a couple of places in Genesis that are out of order with themselves. And that for whatever reason, Moses chose to weave the narrative the way that he did. So maybe, maybe uh, he's looking back at a previous time. Maybe he's not. The ultimate thing to remember is, in, if nothing else, this proves what Genesis 12 said in verses 1, 2, and 3, is that he's going to be the father of many nations. We already know that he's going to be the father of those who follow Isaac. We know that he's going to be the father of those who follow Ishmael. And now, having children by way of Keturah, uh, yet a third woman, that there are going to be children. So there are lots of people who are descendants of Abraham, and in, 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 so therefore a fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12. And then Abraham dies uh, in verses 9, 10, and 11. And there in verse 7, you see how old he was? 175. More importantly than 175 is, I think, verse 8, which I think is, is, is a key verse to kind of circle or to remember in Old Testament study. Because when we think about the afterlife, when we think about heaven, hell, the grave, Sheol, all those different terms that are associated with life after death, uh, we typically think about that as being a New Testament concept. But I would suggest and others would as well, and I agree with them, that verse 8, which reads that uh, Abraham breathed his last diet in the good old age, and old age of full years, and he was gathered to his people, that that phrase gathered to his people is more than just he was laid to rest next to Sarah, but that he was gathered to his people is a almost euphemism for uh, some sort of life hereafter. So the concept of eternal life was not lost on Abraham. That being said, I, I would submit that he did not understand what we understand. I don't, I don't think he had the capacity to understand heaven and hell and, you know, uh, paradise and torment and judgment and all that, the concept that we are now familiar with in the New Testament. Um, and in verse 21... Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife. Why was he pleading? What was the problem? When in doubt and you're dealing with a female in Genesis, the problem is inability to bear children, her barrenness. And he says, yeah, I'm pleading with you, Lord, 
please look at my wife, grant her the opportunity to uh, conceive children. And remember, like we talked about in Genesis uh, 13, 14, 15, that in their culture, the woman was responsible um, be, with the absence of medical technology and those kinds of things. Um, what does Rebecca, this, okay, guess what I'm thinking? What does Rebecca not do that her mother-in-law did do when this was a problem? She doesn't try to insert herself and help God. Rebecca, again, who we get a little bit of, of judgment on her um, in, a, in a minute here, but Rebecca doesn't follow this example in involving some other woman to solve her barrenness problem. Uh, verses 22 through 23, uh, we are very familiar with that particular section uh, where she says, if all is well, why am I like this? There's a couple different ways of reading that as well. Uh, two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One shall be stronger than the other. And then the very last part of verse 23, the older shall serve the younger. Uh, a foreshadowing of the children's struggle. Two children uh, end up coming out. The first child's name was, and again, our seven-year-olds can tell us this, is Esau, whose name literally means hairy. The Bible says he was hairy as a garment. Um, so interesting how that, uh, I'm <laughs> just, I've got images in my mind of the child and the parents going, whoa, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> uh, the second child, Jacob, which literally means one who was going to be a heel grabber or a supplanter. Because as we read, uh, when Jacob comes out in verse 26, he took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Back then, uh, a lot of times you would name your child after uh, an event that had transpired or that transpired at the time of their birth or their conception or whatever the case may be. Um, let's talk for just a minute because here in chapter 25, we'll spend maybe 30 seconds on this unless you want to talk further. But there is favoritism in the children. Uh, who, who favored whom? Jacob was Rebekah's favorite, which meant that Esau was Isaac's favorite. The Bible tells us that Isaac favored Esau because of the food, because of his, uh, this is my term, manly man. Uh, because he was the hunter. He was the one that was the go-getter. Whereas Jacob wanted to dwell in the tents. The Bible does not say that Rebekah preferred Jacob or loved him more because of dwelling in tents. But we kind of generally put two and two together. Uh, it could simply be that, well, if she's going to pick that one, I'll pick this one. Uh, he's, he's more calm and mild-mannered. I don't know what the case was. We can address those questions in heaven at some point if we want to. Um, but for the sake of time here, uh, chapter 26, we're going to come back and deal with Jacob and Esau. Well, Esau uh, despised his birthright. Sometimes we look at this and we think that, and there's so much to be said here, but sometimes we think that Jacob's the bad guy here. Uh, I think the, the key phrase here in the latter part of the text uh, in verse 34 is Esau despised his birthright. 
Jacob was not tricking Esau uh, regarding this, uh, this cooked stew, this red stew, Edom. And Esau, of course, go together hand in hand. Um, the other thing that someone pointed out is that it's unlikely that this is the first time this has come up a conversation. And I thought that was kind of an interesting um, point for Esau to just say, you want the birthright? Jacob said, sure, I'd love that. Uh, is probably not the way that it went down, but rather that this had been brewing for some time. I think that last phrase in chapter 25 where it says Esau despised his birthright is key because it shows his attitude towards something that was very privileged and important in their culture and in their time. We can talk more about that when we get into um, some of the more imagery stuff in the latter chapters. But I want to spend uh, just the last six or seven minutes here in 26 with the story of Isaac and Abimelech. Um, God here makes a promise to Isaac in verse 3. He says, dwell on this land and I will be with you and bless you for to you and your descendants I give all these lands. I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. And then uh, what does Isaac do? Like his father, he lies. So uh, I've got a, uh, I was reading a book today and it's funny because it kept saying like father, like son, like father, like son. There are a lot of similarities between them. And so like his father, Isaac chooses to lie. Um, Why is he lying in in a phrase? Self-preservation. Self-preservation, fear. Uh, over Abimelech. Abimelech, you may remember, is the same name that was used with uh, Abraham. So it's one of three things. Either it's a family name, two, it's a, uh, it's a throne name, or three, it's the same person. Uh, but that's going back many decades. Uh, most people conclude that it's similar to Pharaoh. Yeah, Pharaoh 1, Pharaoh 2, Pharaoh 3, Pharaoh 4, whatever the case may be. Um, it is not logical what he does. And this, this, as we draw to a close, brings us to our applications. It is not logical for him not to trust God and to repeat his father's mistake. But then again, sin isn't logical. There is never a time that we, we sin, even when it's for our own temporary benefit, self-preservation. We're afraid. I want to get ahead. I want to get whatever I'm not supposed to have. That we look back and say, well, that made sense. It always fails to make sense when we look back on it and we regret it. Uh, And that was the case here with Isaac. Um, That being the case, we know that Abimelech um, says, what are you doing here? Again, you have a pagan king uh, not giving glory to God, but at the very least saying, I'm going to do, I'm going to acquiesce and I'm going to allow... you to have your wife, even though you said she was your sister, and I'm not going to touch her. And in fact, he goes as far as to say, anybody that does lay a hand on her, what's going to happen to them? He says, I'll kill them. Their their life will be taken as a result of them. Um, So God, in spite of all this, still blesses Isaac. If you read verses 12 through about verse 17, um, There are a lot of studies that are out there about the average harvest and the harvest that is described in verses 12, 13, 14, 15 is double, triple, quadruple 
what an average farmer would be able to do in his own right. So obviously God is protecting and blessing Isaac. Um, so you kind of get that cringe feeling when it comes to Isaac as you see these things unfolding in verses 3 through about verse 11. And then you come back and you see kind of an attitude on the part of Isaac that sometimes we don't think about very much. And that is uh, in verses 20 and following with the wells. Uh, we know that his father had a disagreement with Lot and Lot's herdsmen over the land. Now, Isaac is growing in increasing population. His people, his animals, uh, his servants. Um, and so having wells was important. So they go to one well, there's a dispute. Goes to another well, there's a dispute. Finally goes to a third well so far away where there could not be any sort of dispute and things settle down immensely. Um, I, the reason I put that up there is that I think that sh this shows a gentleness on the part of Isaac. His willingness to say, you know what? We're not going to argue over this. I'll, I'll move. I'll move a third time if necessary. And there's probably something to be learned about that. Um, and apparently that was something that God was pleased with because in verse 24, it says, The Lord appeared to him the same night. He says, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So he, talking about Isaac, built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord, and he pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. So God encourages Isaac. Isaac, in turn, says, thank you, Lord. I bless you. I praise you. Um, and then the last section of 26 is Esau, a, a little bit of a, a snapshot of Esau, and making a highlight of his poor choice of wives. Uh, what was the problem with him, his, with his wives, in, in short? Yeah, who they're from, right? They're from the Canaanites, from the Hittites, uh, and they were a grief of mine to Isaac and Rebekah. Think about that. Even thousands of years ago, parents grieved over their children's choices when it came to marriage and when it came to a lot of choices. We grieve over our children sometimes when they make certain choices. Um, that was the case then. All right, last two minutes that we've got together. Uh, the three big observations that I came up with is, number one, we have to trust God for what his future promises are. I like what uh, Linda Creech said, the idea that Re Rebecca did not get involved and try to mess up God's plan or try to improve on God's plan. Uh, we cannot improve on God's plans. We've got to trust him and allow him to work in his timetable. Number two, continued worship of God, building altars in a, in a figurative way, thankfulness to God, always warranted. We need to always be thankful to God. And three, sin is never logical. Just do what God wants us to do. Easier said than done. I wish I could tell you that, that was easy and just snap my fingers and then away we go. But it's hard sometimes being faithful and trusting God and worshiping him the way that he deserves. But that's what these people uh, sometimes succeeded in doing and sometimes they failed in doing. All right, in the last 30 seconds, anybody have anything you want to... Uh, add for the benefit. Otherwise, we'll end 20 seconds early. 15 seconds. All right. Thank you all very, very much. We'll go ahead and take a break and allow the young people to come back in. Appreciate your time.